0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the Network. And each week we search the Internet for terrific new books, and we ask the authors to come on the show and talk to us about the books. And this week I'm very pleased to say we have Liz Pleck on the show, and we'll be talking about her book, Not Just Roommates, Cohabitation, After the Sexual Revolution. Thanks for coming on the show, Elizabeth.
1: You're welcome.
0: Let me do that again. Thanks for coming on the show, Liz.
1: You're welcome.
0: (laughs) There we go. Um, uh, Perhaps you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: I am a professor emerita of history at the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And my work has been in U.S. women's and family history. And I've written various aspects of that topic in my whole career and worked around the prior to marriage, marriage, the ritualization of marriage, the rejection of marriage, the shadow of marriage, and also how that fits with uh, different racial and ethnic groups.
0: Mm -hmm. So this particular book is about what we might call non-marriage, that is cohabitation. And um, tell us why you wrote it.
1: Well, I saw this uh, cohabitation as the missing piece of the aftermath of the sexual revolution of the 1960s. That, That is, there's usually a sentence that says that as a result of the 60s, there were these huge changes such as more single parenthood, more divorce, of course cohabitation, and cohabitation is just this add on or supplement it 's mentioned, but it 's seen as something that that 's so obvious that it wouldn 't deserve a history and What I think is interesting is that it still is uh, in the margins, but it 's one of the most significant changes in sexual, in sexual life and marriage in the family as since the 1960s, something not just happening in the U.S., but happening in all developed countries, and uh, part of, I guess, what we would call a trend towards much more flexible relationships or shorter duration marriage-like relationships that are are becoming uh, a huge and significant development in many countries. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, why don't we begin by talking about the history and the demographics themselves. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about the change in the rate of cohabitation from roughly the post-war, that is post-Second World War period, to today, and attendant demographic developments like the increase in the number of divorces and things like that.
1: Well, uh, Since we have a a historian's uh, audience, I would begin by saying uh, if we go way back in time, we would say that it would really be hard to distinguish cohabiting from marriage because marriage was more a process than a formal ceremony and, uh, and because people simply pretended to be married even when they weren't and so there was a great deal of that but when we're talking here what we're talking about in our conversation is 1960s in developed world and on and there uh, what we have 19 say 1960 to present is a 35 fold increase in the rate of cohabiting in that space of time. And uh, that's probably the most major unilinear trend in uh, um, family and sexual life that one can find. Um, it, um, it In the 60s, we're talking about a profile of a relatively small group of people. Let's say if you could measure it accurately, which you can't, uh, we would put it in the uh, say 200 to 400 thousand person range, and uh, we would be describing people who are poor, not well educated, interracial, bohemian um, college students. And now, if we talk about cohabitation in the U.S., we're talking about a group that's 16 and a half million strong. Um, It's still um, overweighted towards the lower end of the social scale, so more minorities, more poorly educated, but it is actually the first union formation, the term that demographers might use, for the the standard pathway that people enter their first unions and either then they go from there to marriage or then they go from there to breaking up. Mm And uh, the other development that is absolutely huge, 40% of all households today of cohabitors are child-rearing units. Or if, uh, when we're talking about the 60s, people have in mind a lot, a lot of uh, couples who don't have kids at all. Now, 40% of uh, households of cohabitors have children, and they're one or more biological children of both parents and half are from the cohabiting union itself.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So would it be correct to say that prior to, say, 19, let's pick an arbitrary date, 1970-ish, that the norm was not to cohabitate before marriage, and after 19, again, we'll pick an arbitrary date, 85 or 90, it became the norm to cohabitate before marriage?
1: I would say if we, would we just add in there... middle class for middle class the ideal and the standard was you did not do this and 80s and if you did you lied about it Mm -hmm. and from the 80s and 90s you did it and you didn't lie to about it or you didn't have to and parents didn't expect you to lie and I'd say the the parentheses around there is, there are some groups where it's still necessary to lie and conceal. But on the whole, we're talking about the standard for the society. That's mm-hmm. a, that's a huge shift.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So, now the most difficult question, I suppose, and that is, why the rise of cohabitation? I, I suppose actually, we could talk about that for about a week, but <laughs> let's try to boil it down.
1: Well, actually, I find that the... Kind of the easiest question is, uh, uh, in the sense of cla- the causes are not so hard. It's the um, the way it ripples out into society, and the way that society responds to it that seems to me to be the most puzzling. But the the answer that I would give is many factors: feminism, effective birth control, rising age of marriage. Prevalence of divorce, divorce makes people marriage shy. Decline of religious morality that says that you don't have to wait until you marriage to have sexual intercourse. And then I think the uh, one that's more recent, which is the, the standard expectation for what it is that you have to have in place before you marry has been greatly rising. And uh, this brings in my previous work, which is not only is it what you have to have in place in terms of a bank account or a job, but also the standard of what you're you want in terms of a wedding ritual, has risen so greatly that people delay. So all of these are pushing uh, marriage. The sociologists say marriage is it's the it's the gold standard or it's the ideal but it is also um, a kind of uh, privileged status and people that all of those things and people are also a little afraid of it. And so they, it, it's pushed off into the distance and these other forms of relating are developing as uh, placeholders, but they they're becoming more prominent.
0: Yeah. So would it be correct to say, you know, I'm thinking about a cocktail party conversation or a elevator conversation that, Um, I guess what we call the decline of marriage and the rise of cohabitation is a result of people being scared of making a commitment?
1: That's one part of it. Certainly one part of it. And uh, part of what they're scared of is uh, they have divorced or they are children of divorce and they know that there is something to be feared about the marriage state. So that with uh, cohabitation, for example, is the absolute first pathway for people who are remarrying they definitely want to uh, try this thing out before they're willing to find on the dotted line mm-hmm. so it's certainly part of it
0: mm-hmm. I, I just find that very interesting in the sense that it's not an affirmative thing that is people don't say i'm going to cohabitate because it's the right thing to do they say i'm going to cohabitate because i'm scared of the alternative
1: Well, as in all of these studies of demography, there's some who are in the latter category. So some people, uh, this is the smallest group of cohabitors, are people who have a positive view that they are looking for an institution other than legal marriage and are uh, are approaching uh, cohabitation as a more flexible form and they're a critique of marriage. But on the whole, most cohabitors are not ideologically opposed to marriage. they're not ready for it or they're not uh or they're afraid of it but they c- could envision themselves entering into it at some future time mm-hmm. so in that sense, cohabitation really mostly exists in the shadow of marriage rather than as an, a true alternative to it
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see so. Talk to us just a little bit about the ways in which people who are cohabiting um, are discriminated against. And again, I'm a little bit mindful of the terminology here because I guess I'm not sure that the promotion of marriage is the same as discrimination against cohabitors. Um, in the book, you say that it is. I'm not I'm not quite clear on that, but, but you can talk about it a little bit. Go ahead.
1: Well, um, here's an example of it. Um, in uh, 1960, well, this is uh, okay. One one definition of being second class citizen, or is being denied the right to vote. So, uh, in 1960, Louisiana passed a constitutional amendment that disenfranchised anyone who had lived in a common law marriage mm-hmm. within five years of applying to vote now the reason they did this is not because they were so terribly co- concerned about cohabitors but because they saw it as a proxy for race mm-hmm. that it would be more common among blacks and this was a backdoor jim crow attempt to disenfranchise blacks and when, which is often the case with cohabitation is a form can be used as a form of race control or Jim Crow race control. But uh, in this case, it is an, a clear instance of denial of citizenship rights based on cohabitation. And uh, just to consider the contrast, in the in the history of the gay rights movement, there is no case like a constitutional amendment like that mm-hmm. where gay people have been denied the right to vote mm-hmm. because of um Because of their sexual orientation or living status, mm-hmm. so that's one example there aren't other states that do it but it's uh it is most uh, common in uh these days in uh, terms of um, employment housing um, uh military policies so in housing, there are zoning rules that are still in existence, although r- rarely enforced, that uh, prohibit cohabitors from living in certain, um, in certain towns, um, in certain areas of the town. There are no protections for employment discrimination against people who cohabit. Um, there are three states. In all these three states, the law is no longer enforced. Or it's still on the books that someone that cohabitation is a crime. Um, last person to be arrested for the crime of cohabitation, I think, was probably 2003. There are people today who are arrested for adultery. Um, uh, you can punch punch up this information on the web. You'll find a, a 2013 arrest in Florida for adultery. Um, Cohabitors cannot sponsor their partners for immigration purposes. Cohabitors in the military, prohibited from living on base housing, many other benefits. Um, Cohabitors in the U.S. are the most likely group by marital status, uh, straight cohabitors to lack health insurance. 30% of straight cohabitors do not have have health insurance. Mm -hmm.
0: So uh, I I guess one, I guess well, let's let's turn the question around. Why, why are uh, why do, d- does the United States promote marriage, and why has it?
1: Well, uh, in answering the question, it, I think it, um, you you have to say this is not a recent phenomenon in the U.S. It's actually a very strong um, tradition in the United States. In fact, I would say that it's. It's one of the traditions that makes the United States what it is, which is it's a highly religious country where it has a formal separation of church and state, but informally it uses religious morality as a principle for providing social benefits and for dividing and controlling the population and that that has remained uh, the case up to the present day. And in fact, whereas you could say that this was also a tradition in many other countries, you find that uh, many of these developed countries gradually chip away at that, their tradition. Whereas in the United States, the nature of the sexual revolution and what we call the culture war was that it Reinvigorated and reinforced that tradition of marriage and privileging marriage in U.S. society, and I said it, it had a religious component, but the religious mixes in with the idea that um, uh, of the nation, which is that the country faces these various crises, and marriage is kind of a symbol of the stability of the nation, and therefore, a strong marriage needs to be defended in order to make for a strong nation. And that kind of rhetoric appears time and again. It uh, it appeared more most recently in Samuel Alito's uh, uh, questioning about same-sex marriage in these cases in the last month. And uh, so, but the belief that Legal marriage is the foundation of the nation. It's a very strong, state, powerful statement and animating force in our legislation and policy.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess just speaking from my own experience, the, and, and this includes uh, gay friends of mine that are supporters of uh, gay marriage, the, the primary argument they give for marriage is that it's the way we raise children. And m- married couples are better at raising children than cohabitors. And so if you're going to have children, you should get married. I mean, that has nothing to do with God whatsoever and certainly doesn't have anything to do with the nation. I mean, I know that in my own, I guess, again, I'm just speaking for myself. When I think about why people should get married, it's because they they may have children and they need to make a commitment to those children and they shouldn't get divorced and they should raise those children.
1: Well, um, let's see. Uh, um the fir- The first thing to say about cohabiting is that the studies uh, are not very positive about cohabiting in children. Uh, they might change because cohabiting is becoming more likely but it 's not a particularly beneficial relationship in which to raise children and um, that's not that doesn 't weaken the arguments about uh state state involvement, it actually strengthens them, which is that we have a way of living among 16.5 million people that is growing stronger with uh, millions of children in it, in which the basic uh, social provisions are denied these children because of the way that we um, draw a dividing line around marriage. And the dividing line around marriage uh, which uh, is is not being challenged by same-sex, at least the way it's, it's construed now. What same-sex marriage, the arguments now are to make a stronger dividing line between legal marriage and non-marriage. Mm-hmm. And what that uh, uh, effectively does is that the people who are below the line that is outside of the marriage institution, they're less likely to get the absolute key um, benefits that we um, provide through marriage rather than citizenship. The way I would put it, state this is the uh, marriage rather than citizenship provides for uh, Social Security, which is the retirement benefit and disability and survivor's benefit, and also marriage is the filter through, rather than citizenship through which people get health insurance. And given that, to make such a strong division between legal marriage and those outside of legal marriage essentially creates a have and have not relationship divide. And in these other countries that would be um, the, the examples of all the Scandinavian countries and France and Holland, etc., they make fewer distinctions between the married and non-married in terms of both things and benefits and tax status, etc. And they instead, they, they define it as uh, couples who are together for a certain period of time or when they're as a child. And so that if we were really committed to children, we would look at the minimum standard of living necessary for children, irregardless of the um, formal legal status of the situation in which they are raised. Instead, we're emphasizing a kind of um, moral ideal and trying to incentivize people to get into it at the same time that we're going to leave out all of the other people who are... Um, choosing or or waiting depending on your view to get into marriage choosing to stay out of marriage or waiting to get into it Mm
0: -hmm. I mean one thing that immediately occurs to me though is uh, it seems like marriage is all upside and no downside so it would seem to me somebody who's a critic of cohabitation would say well just get married what's the penalty? There's no penalty
1: it's
0: all, is, it's all it's
1: all upside. That is what makes the cohabitation argument less appealing to people rather than as opposed to the same sex marriage arguments. Mm-hmm. Cohabitation is a less appealing argument precisely because these are people who are uh, have the legal and constitutional option of the right to marry. And choose not to do so, and the one exception is people who are separated and still married, yeah. and, but are are in a cohabiting relationship. But in our view, this this is the uh, what would be the equivalent of the undeserving poor. These are people who had the choice and are uh, and are not choosing to do it, and. Uh, and I would say, in, in our way of thinking, there is no such thing as the right not to marry or the right not to have to marry. Um, and that is because, in fact, we don't think that there is anything wrong with the idea that there should, we should incentivize marriage, even to the point of coercing it. And uh, so in that view, uh, the... Uh, this isn't an undeserving category, but if you turn it the other way, you look at the other way of the glass, and you say uh, that a right to privacy means, uh, in an expanded right to privacy, you don't coerce into something that people are not ready to choose, and that uh, such things as health insurance are a basic right of all individuals, irrespective of their marital status then in that sense, then you all all of a sudden start to look at this uh, entirely differently. Why, for example, is uh, do we have Social Security benefits for the survivor's benefits for the divorced when they're not in the marital state? They've left it and, in fact, um, rejected it. Whereas there are no Social Security survivor's benefits for people who are cohabiting. Well, I mean, um, I, th- I, I guess
0: I think the answer to that question, again, what, a, what a, I'm thinking of a particular friend of mine who's quite conservative, what he would say is okay. that the people that made that commitment deserve a benefit. The people who did not stand before us and make that commitment don't.
1: Well, that's that was their the way choice. Our, um, that is the way our society is, is works, is that we, and that is why I think the United States is our... our exceptional and unique in that sense that your conservative friend is echoing the fact that the United States has a much more conservative approach to family and marriage in its um, social policy. And what what the historian is interested in is that's very interesting about the United States. We know all other ways; it's exceptional. This one is not discussed very much, and uh, one needs to contrast it with other countries and understand why it's so, and look at the historical developments that have uh, underlie it. And the um, the puzzling feature about it is that it. Exist this phenomena of that the, marriage is tremendously incentivized in terms of, and promoted in terms of state policy and and ideas is that it exists at the same time that uh, sexual revolution has been taking place in the United States as in many other developed countries, and that the acceptance of cohabitation has tra- has uh, increased dramatically with the idea that there's very little personal stigma attached to cohabitation anymore. So that the phenomenon itself has not been stopped or impeded in any way, but it's the law and policy that are tremendously out of sync with the actual development, and that is what uh, is um, different about the United States, the United States, Canada, or Holland, or France, or Scandinavia.
0: Mm-hmm. Scandinavia. Um, one of the things I was interested to learn in your book, and also this occurred to me while I was reading it, though, is that um, you know, in the United States, I think marriage is a very healthy institution. It's, it, you're right, it is somewhat in decline. But in, in comparison to other places I've lived, and particularly in Western Europe, and also in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, uh, where marriage is uh, much more of a kind of... a I don't know what to call it. It doesn't happen as often, and children are often born out of wedlock there, and no one seems to be bothered by it. Uh, And again, this is an argument that a conservative might make, is that those places have a real problem because their birth rates are declining. In the United States, this is not true anymore. Uh, People are encouraged to get married by the state, and they're also encouraged to have children. This isn't to say that, of course, they aren't encouraged to have children in France. They are. I have a friend that lives in France. They'll pay you to have children. They still don't have children. So, um, I mean, it seems to me that the people that argue... That marriage and the promotion of childbearing within marriage that is good for the republic. Have uh, in the comparative frame, have uh, have a point, or am I wrong uh, about that? I mean, again, that's what my I won't say okay. who this guy I won't, I mean, say this guy. I won't say who this guy. Marriage encourages is.
1: childbearing, <laughs> and childbearing is necessary for population growth, and population growth is necessary for economic development. No, and, not even economic uh, development. I mean, so these I, are, I would say that actually, it's that. Um, Uh, I would say that it's immigration and cohabitation encourage a higher birth rate and higher birth rate is uh, a phenomenon in the U S and I agree that it encourages um, uh, economic growth and is actually good for welfare state because it means that more people are available to contribute to uh, social systems that essentially pass on the, their, their, uh, Right. Well, it's not uh, even economic- tax revenues. Say, so it's not- let me just yeah, explain how, how you get that. First of all, a birth rate, although declining among Hispanics, is a ma- is a major contributor to American growth in um, in uh, birth rate and. Uh, Hispanic immigration is highly associated with cohabitation. In fact, Hispanics have a long tradition of informal marriage and, and, a uh, and the real pattern of, of cohabitation, uh, which is continuing in, uh, in, w- when they immigrate to the U.S. And the second I would say is that actually you look at American birth rates and you can see that these births are, uh, are occurring within the cohabiting relationship, not within marriage, and that is the that is the kind of fundamental transformation at the bottom of society, which is that people are living together, they're having a child together, and then they're waiting and deciding whether or not that that will be uh, convert uh, into a legal marriage and making the distinction between. Uh, Childbearing and marriage as two separate things, and the American birth rate is actually part uh, coming from not from the tradition of marriage, but from from these from this immigration and the patterns of co- new patterns of cohabiting and childbearing and within cohabitation. So the rate and of- if we really want to encourage um, a higher birth rate, it's uh, probably the case that it's cohabitation, lengthening out the the, uh, uh, period of cohabitation and actually providing more supports to people in cohabitation, which would probably be fit with that kind of pattern.
0: So let me just understand this. You're saying then that the uh, rate of reproduction among cohabiting couples is greater, that is, of childbearing age, is greater than the rate of reproduction among married couples oh, of childbearing age. I, I, I
1: don't actually don't know the, the rate of reproduction figures. I just know that uh, the, the, <laughs> the pattern uh, at the lower end of the social scale, and then now the norm is that people are in cohabiting relationships and have children in cohabiting relationships. And then some of those convert to legal marriage and others do not but it's an absolutely huge trend, mm-hmm. and that uh, 40% of all to children are in such cohabiting relationships. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And I guess one of the things you're saying then is that if we acknowledge this fact and we no longer A, stigmatized childbearing out of wedlock in cohabiting relationships, and B, more importantly we supported these people, that is with public aid of various sorts then the uh disadvantage which children face in cohabiting couples would sort of disappear they would be treated just like uh like the the children of married couples
1: well uh i think the disadvantage probably wouldn't disappear but um, and if you want my value statement, it is this? <laughs> yeah, my value statement <laughs> is that we need to put a floor under children, yeah. and not put the floor under marriage. Yeah. And if you put a floor under children, it is that they we have a kind of minimum level standard of living that all children have, irrespective of the residential arrangements yeah. in which they are found, and that's quite different from. Uh, as you, your very apt statement of our current policy, which is to promote marriage. Our policy is we don't put, we put the floor under marriage and then we try to get as many people into that as possible. And my argument is that doesn't work and it's not realistic and it's not happening. And we've tried, uh, our entire history is trying to have that. Um, and the, the nature of a kind of American liberal ideology, uh, at least since kind of Kinsey, is that one has to look at people's actual ways that they live in their sexual lives and their family lives, and that law should, and policy should, mm-hmm. should come closer to um, being able to recognize that that's what how they live. And that you can, and that the point is not to impose a single moral standard on that. Mm-hmm. And that once you do that, that will then lead you to uh, an entirely different view of what our policy is. Mm-hmm. So let's talk
0: then specifically about the ways in which, let's just imagine a notional couple. You know, they're twenty-three years old. They've been cohabiting for a few years, and they have one kid. Uh, how are they different than? Uh, another notional couple It's married 23. They've been cohabiting since they got married and they have one kid.
1: Our, our couple that are married and have one child are, are, uh, all the, the difference. Uh, okay. So I can answer that. The, probably the rate, the way you've stacked up the, 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 um, uh comparison is that the age of marriage is held constant, that we have both 23-year-olds. Well, we can make
0: and, it different if you want to make it different.
1: All, well, the yeah. reason I wanted to tell you about the reason this is different is because essentially right now we we have um marriage has a very strong class divide, and it's getting stronger. And class means class Social class and education, specifically bachelor's degree or more. Mm-hmm. So that the people uh, college educated are now, as, this is as distinct from 60s and 70s, college educated now are less likely to get divorced than in the, in the general population. They are somewhat less likely to cohabit. Prior to the union, they are much more likely to have children within a legal marriage, and to wait until they are legally married until, and subsequently to have children. Mm-hmm. So all of that kind of uh, what we we call the traditional package um, is associated with the two two earner college educated couple. And then the other contrast is when you look at the um, People who have some college or not, or um, but not full four years or high school, et cetera. And there you find much more of uh, cohabitation, serial cohabitation, childbearing within the cohabiting relationship, and then it does or does not evolve into legal marriage. And the, the cohabiting begins at an earlier age. Mm-hmm. So all of this is just saying we have... Uh, we have a new kind of class picture of marriage on one side, uh, cohabiting relationships on the other, which is much more associated with a kind of post-sexual uh, revolution, post-industrial kind of economy, where the benefits are clearly going to the people who are college educated. And they are forming new kind of uh, um, more more stable kind of marriages, the the, the two-earner kind of marriage. But that's not what's happening at the bottom of the society or the bottom to the middle.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, the, what I really meant by the question was, I mean, in terms of their legal status that is married and unmarried and vis-a-vis sort of state benefits, that would be things like, um, you know, the opportunity to get welfare, visitation rights in hospitals, uh, you know, uh tax credits, things like this. What differentiates the married from the unmarried couple? Because your thesis, as I understand it, is that the unmarried couple is at a disadvantage in terms of state benefits.
1: Um, well the uh, the most clearest one is if the these people uh, um, if one of these two people dies in the relationship, and they have been employed with social security. Then the uh, the woman in the relationship gets no social security survivors benefit, and that's because she was not legally married. So the kid will receive something, but the but the a woman will not. And she is most likely to be the caretaker for the child. Mm-hmm. Um, moreover, yes, hospitals would have um, hospitals vary in their rules, but she would not have had a uh, a legal right to visit the, uh, um, the the partner in in the hospital. Um, and uh, as I said, the most important is that the. Uh, these are people who are, are much more likely, unless they have an, an enlightened employer with domestic partnership benefits, they're much more likely to be, uh, not have dependent health insurance for the, the um, uh, dependent partner.
0: Mm-hmm. And I, I guess, um, and again, this is asking you to speculate a little bit, because but it's very interesting. I mean, I do, this is what you say is very convincing and it, it, It is certainly consistent with my own experience. The people I know uh, who are in stable long term relationships with kids are college educated. And, um, the people that I know who are not are not. And, uh, they, they, I happen by another connection to know a lot of, um, a lot of uh, young women who are single mothers. Uh, it has to do with some, um, volunteer work I do. Uh, and they, they are uniformly not college graduates. Uh, that's quite true. And they also are uniformly without, um, um the support of the fathers of the children uh, and they did cohabitate so I, what you say is very convincing um so what would what should we do then um i i guess i don't know I, I just don't how would you encourage people to stay with their partners and raise their children outside promoting marriage
1: well um i actually uh, let people work on their well, first of all, it's yes. There are many people who want to work on anger men- management management, relationship <laughs> skills, yeah. and all of these things. And if they do, I uh, my idea is that our health insurance programs should promote uh, should all of our health insurance promote uh, programs should make it available at, for mental health yeah. as well as yeah, I mean, uh, definitely physical that. health. Yeah. But that, see, that is a way of saying. I don't like our, that they, our welfare programs today now have as a component of them that they have various relationship skills counseling that go, that are basically through, uh, they're, they're called marriage promotion programs and they're basically through our welfare departments and, uh, in which we're, we're using that as the carrot to, um, uh, to get people, to incentivize people to marry. I would say what we want to incentivize is we want to incentivize people to uh, retrain and get education for themselves. And, uh, and if they choose to um, find, uh, figure out how to, if they choose to get um, more counseling about relationships, that's fine. Most of the studies indicate that uh, women are more interested in such relationship counseling than men, and that it's much more likely that people who are um, more middle class are interested in such counseling than others, and that's why I tend towards the basics. In our society, we have a tremendous emphasis on the uh, value that increased training and education gives you in terms of the labor market. It's not working for everybody, even even our college educated today, but it's definitely at the bottom. Uh, the opposite is definitely the case, that less education is a real detriment in terms of um, one's success. So I would say oh, uh, instead of putting posters on buses encouraging people <laughs> to get relationship counseling, uh, we should restore those credits so that people can go back to community college yeah. for training yeah. and that there should be child care credits that go with that so that people have access to that while they're going back for training. Yeah. Uh, so it's a question of, uh, I, I realize we're cutting back on things, but our uh, as I said, uh, my study shows you where have our priorities gone to or been, and they have. there is a tremendous um, privileging of marriage mm-hmm. in the society and its programs. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, what you say is consistent with my own experience. Again, my um, mother got married very young to my father. My father took off, and my mother was in college at the time. When she got married, quit college, and then uh, she went back to college and finished her degree and became a teacher. And uh, we did just fine after that.
1: <laughs> so, oh. so was I tra- intuited your family. Yeah, meditating. It was the training
0: that really saved us. It wasn't mm-hmm. any sort of uh, marriage counseling or relationship counseling. It was the school district in Wichita, Kansas, and my mother's degree in uh, mm. English. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I quite agree with all that. Well, you know, it's a fascinating book, and I'm really happy that we had you on the show today. It's been a, a very, very interesting discussion for me. I, I um, again, I, I, you know, I'm, of uh, the generation that lived this, just exactly this transition. I cohabited myself. My parents did not. Um, you know, I have kids. I have no doubt that they will cohabit. Uh, and it's just kind of interesting to see where it all goes. And also, I really like the, the emphasis in the book about this, these comparisons with other um, developed nations where we also see cohabitation on the rise. The United States is something of an experiment, and we do do things a little bit differently here. I mean, these are hard problems. And okay. uh, they're not—they they're, admit of no easy solution. I mean, we want to have children uh, raised in a loving and 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 reasonably, um, you know, a prosperous environment. And how to get there is a uh, anybody's guess. I—I you know, don't know. It's very confusing. So, in any event, um, Liz, thanks for being on the show today. We've been um, talking to uh, Liz Pleck about her book, "Not Just Roommates: Cohabitation After the Sexual Revolution." Liz, I want to ask you our a traditional final question uh, on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? What's your next
1: project? Well, I, I tend to cycle around my family history topics. So if I, I let it sit for a while, I go back to it. And my second book was about the history of domestic violence. And so now I'm going back and looking at the new research that's being done about domestic violence in countries other than the developed world,
0: hmm. and
1: really reviewing the re- reviewing the recent research, because in those countries you get a different legal system, you have different religious traditions, uh, and um, uh, different patterns that I uh, that really ask us to um, revisit the whole. A question of, of the the cultural context of uh, domestic
0: violence. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds fascinating. I know, actually, I know a little bit about that as well. And uh, they, they do, do, yeah. It's different over there. It's different in other places than we deal with it. <laughs> Definitely, it's different. So, anyway, that sounds terrific. Again, we've been talking to Liz Black about her book, "Not Just Roommates: Cohabitation After the Sex- Sexual Revolution." I'm Marshall Poe, the host. Uh, well, the, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. This this particular interview will be posted on lots of channels, which I. That's why I didn't say the host of X. Uh, And um, I want to thank everyone for listening to this interview. But especially I want to thank uh, Liz Pleck for being on the show. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Bye-bye.